I'm Michael Hainsworth. We're starting to get quantifiable data on the impact of COVID-19 on Canadian businesses. Statistics Canada's new data source, the Canadian Survey of Business Conditions, sampled 13,000 companies across the country to learn that four out of five of them have experienced a medium to high drop in demand. More than half say revenue has plunged more than 20%. And more than half say they won't survive beyond the next 90 days without revenue. Economist and C.D. Howe senior fellow Glenn Hodgson tells us the survey findings will help us anticipate a few key factors as Canada starts the process of reopening its economy. Yeah, it's a new survey that was launched basically as the pandemic started, launched on a joint basis between StatsCan and the Chamber of Commerce. The Bank of Canada has done an index kind of every quarter for a long time, but we have a real need right now to have more frequent data on what business conditions are. So the new survey is really Really helpful. This was a mid-April sample of about 13,000 businesses. And what did it teach us? Well, it taught us that kind of simultaneously that a lot of businesses are not ready to actually sit this one out. They don't have the financial capacity, but also that they're resilient. So on the bad news side, um, most respondents said that they couldn't last uh, two or three months without, without cash flow. They don't have enough cash on reserve. And um, they're obviously seeing an impact right now in revenues. Uh, half the businesses surveyed saw the revenues fall by at least 20%, some of, of course, much deeper. So that's the bad news story, that there's really kind of a, a brittleness, the, the business condition. On the good side, a lot of the respondents are trying to adapt. They're trying to adapt by building digital models, trying different things out, having employees work from home. And I guess the best news is that I think it was 62, 63% of respondents said that they could bounce back fairly quickly when the stay-at-home order stops. So you're getting a kind of a mixed story, but there is a story of fragility there, which kind of leads to the, the conclusions I'm starting to draw about business conditions as we enter the restart period. What does it say that more than half of those who reported uh, in the Canadian survey of business conditions, that they wouldn't be able to operate beyond three months or so without a, a source of revenue. I remember back in high school, we were always taught on a personal level to always have three months worth of cash. What though of those in the business world? So I'm glad you found that a striking finding. I had the same reaction. Really how thin the financial position is of many businesses. They don't have retained earnings. They don't have easy access to more equity. They don't have kind of a standing line with their bank. So it really speaks to the fragility of their financial position. You know, I was taught the same thing on a personal basis. You should have enough in, in the bank. I mean, certainly once you're working, when you stop being a student and, and become an adult, you should have enough in the bank to be able to live for a while. And I kind of presumed that most small businesses in particular would have the same principle in mind, but I guess not. It, it tells us that a lot of businesses are really hand-to-mouth businesses. They're earning enough revenue on a monthly basis, you know, pay their rent, pay for their, their, their workforce and their, and their supplies but they're not really building kind of a margin on a going forward basis of retained earnings or access to more, to more equity. Yeah. My favorite tweets on this topic came from a millennial who said, well, you know, maybe if these large corporations hadn't spent all their money on avocado toast. (laughs) You know, I don't think it's the large corporations so much as the small companies. I mean, I, I, I guess the concern a lot of us have, is how many small and mid-sized companies which have employees of anywhere from 10 to say two or 300 employees are going to survive this. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are clearly some that are affected. We can talk about the sectors that are affected. But I, I guess the general concern is about small-sized companies that are client-facing and how they're going to get through this. 
There is a lot of talk about restarts, and I know it's not consistent across the country and some provinces may be further ahead than others, depending on where they were geographically when all of this hit, of course. But having said that, let's talk about business closures and restructuring, because you point out that given the scale of the shutdown and the weak financial foundations of many businesses, that you're anticipating a lot of closures, despite the fact that we had that downward trend in insolvencies for years. Yeah, and, and there I think it's useful to kind of stratify the market between smaller companies and bigger companies. Larger companies are absolutely right. We've had a downward trend actually since the global financial crisis a decade ago of firms that are accessing the, the legislation, CCA legislation that gives them bankruptcy protection and, and allows them to restructure. That's a downward trend. That legislation has actually worked fairly well. I've had a chance to consult with a few law professors, for example, who've talked about this. And they anticipate, although the numbers will jump, the legislation is fairly solid to allow a workout so that a lot of those firms won't disappear, but they will have to restructure, recapitalize, do things differently. The real black hole, the danger of the black hole is around small business, which are being hit directly in the face with this. They don't have the cash reserves and they don't have as, as tidy a legal process to work through in terms of workouts. And a lot of them are in the sectors that are most, most affected. They're in, in re retail, so actual storefronts facing customers in hospitality. So you hear stories about restaurants, about, about bars and people in the tourism sector as well are all really exposed. Those are all big sources of employment in our economy, often of young people starting their careers. And they're the ones that are really exposed to the risk of actually shutting down as, as we get through this. So you're calling for a more orderly process uh, for distressed small companies in addition to what we already have through CCAA. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think the order would start with the largest creditors. So, start, so for example, our banking institutions often will have either mortgages on properties or lines of credit in place. They could actually act as a centerpiece of this to ensure that we have kind of a tidy workout situation. There's always an order of creditors, right? Equity holders are last, and then you have debt holders and others, others along the way. But ensuring we have an orderly enough process to work our way through this um, is really important. I'm not sure we need structural change. I think this is almost a matter of institutions showing leadership. And for example, if you're a, a creditor, an extender of debt financing to small business, don't rush out there and sort of call a line of credit as a way to kind of close the business. Think about the consequences, including the inability to have a customer on a going forward basis and see what you can do to bring a bit of order to the process. That handles your small to medium sized businesses of which, as you point out, many are within retail or customer facing businesses that rely on foot traffic and what have you. Well, what though of the energy industry where we're not out and about, we're not driving, we're not consuming. You know, my hair is not the only thing that 70s like, you know, the prices at the pumps are pretty low too. <laughs> they are. And, and globally, we've seen a really sharp drop in, in demand for oil products. Oil more than gas is being affected. And that's the sector that's attracted a huge amount of public attention because it is so bad right now in Alberta, spilling into Saskatchewan and Newfoundland. Um, the federal government did respond early this week. So they've now put in place a credit facility um, coming from the feds for, for businesses of all types. But it was really striking the kind of conditions that, that were also put in place. So we're getting kind of a, a first round signaling from the federal government, the conditions will have to be met. And for the energy sector, one of the conditions really striking was that they actually have a, have a climate policy. They actually have a, are putting a policy in place to reduce emissions in their business. But you're absolutely right to single, single out the energy sector. 
because that was affected over and above what was happening with the coronavirus because of the the battle between the Saudis and the Russians about prices, prices falling effectively to zero right. uh, at the end of March. And but but so far we don't have a kind of a standalone single program for energy companies so much as accessing the facilities that are being made available for all companies. So as they deal with COVID-19, you point out that there is a silver lining, at least on the small to medium-sized businesses, or, or any business really, that has the ability to go digital. We're seeing a lot more of that. Yeah, we were, we've been seeing that for the last, what, three to five years or longer, where the so-called FANG stocks, or the dominant stocks in, in, our, in our, our stock exchanges, you can see the, tra- the transitioning. In an area like retail, for example, we've seen a number of sort of big box retailers, bricks and mortar retails closed down. So we're, we had already seen that phenomenon, and it's now being amplified, where, for example, your local restaurant, we have a couple of restaurants we frequent quite often here in Ottawa, and they're now not doing in-store service, but they're able to take orders online, have the shipment come to the door. So that's where nimble businesses have found a way to kind of leap into the digital space and become online businesses. They may have already had the business model, but it's now much greater reliance. And that's what we should anticipate going forward. That competition is really a tilted playing field in favor of the digital either companies or businesses that are able to offer a a digital service. And those that can't, unfortunately, I think are gonna be really left behind. Well, we see evidence of that already. You know, I don't think a day goes by where I don't get an email from Cineplex trying to get me to funnel money in their direction in a manner that they weren't accustomed to prior to COVID-19. There are industries that are attempting to do a major pivot right now, but I wonder if it sticks. I wonder if it lasts. Well, it's really hard to pivot. If your core business has been bricks and mortar historically, going back decades or, or longer, and yet your competition, so I, you're getting it from Cineplex, I'm getting it from Netflix every second day. Right. Sort of a new thing they're, they're pushing all the time. Can it last? Can you actually pivot in the middle of a crisis? to take on the competition who basically built their business around a digital model, where they have a tremendous roster of films available, TV series available, and a rapidly growing, growing client base. And that really kind of typifies the competitive challenge that more traditional businesses are facing right now. They already had it. It's been amplified through the, through the pandemic period. When we think about digital, we think about those consumer-facing businesses that are trying to pivot. But at the same time, whether your business is consumer-facing or not, there's been a tremendous shift to work from home. And I think one of the the things that we may see on a long-term basis is the realization that when the company said they didn't have the process in place to allow their employees to work from home, that explanation is not going to fly post-COVID-19. You know, I'm old enough that I've seen various managers struggle with this over the last, frankly, two decades. And you're absolutely right. We've discovered that most of us do have the, the platform available to either link in to the, the, the data system at the office, fit in, fit in through our email system. And uh, it's interesting. That's one of the areas where the respondents to the survey we talked about earlier. Half of the businesses that responded, almost half, said that they were experimenting with work from home. And that, I, th- I think we should anticipate that's going to be a structural shift in the whole nature of work going forward. Uh, businesses will discover that you can actually get a big chunk of your work done from people working remotely. It saves travel time. Uh, it, it, may, it may allow you to shrink your office space and go to more of a hoteling model, for example, in offices. So it's, I think it's very logical to anticipate more and more businesses will have that as an option. 
Maybe you have core hours where you have face-to-face -face meetings a couple days a week. But a lot of, a lot of sort of brain workers, uh, high professional service workers, most of us were working from them anyway, off hours, on our phones, on our pads, on our computers. I used to work a lot in, uh, in hotels and airport waiting lounges, waiting for a flight. And I would often get things written there. And I think that's, the, that's a model that a lot of firms are now going to see as kind of a part of their core operating model after we come out of this. What though of the businesses that can't pivot? And I'm, I'm thinking most companies would have the ability to work from home. Most companies would have the ability to address customers digitally as well. But if you are making a widget, if you are selling a physical product, you have a physical supply chain that you have to rely on. And we found that this just-in-time delivery mechanism we literally spent the last 30 years building has an incredible weak link. Yeah, I think it's very important to differentiate here. We have kind of the professional services firms, including education and healthcare now. We know now, for example, that physicians can do diagnosis online. You can actually prescribe online and people can go to the drugstore and pick up their, their pharmaceuticals. Education, we're experimenting with that. So there are a lot of businesses that are able to work in that model, but you're absolutely right. If you're in manufacturing or resource extraction, you need access to your supply chains, to your assembly facilities, and to your workforce, of course, to operate. So there's, there's cheering going on right now in the marketplace that's going to have ramifications going forward. And you're, you're absolutely right to point to uh, adding reliability and resilience. The whole purpose of supply chains was to get more efficient, right? That's why we went to global value chains. That's why so much of kind of in production was shifted to China over the last 25 years. It was a cheap way to get things actually assembled using lower cost labor. Well, now we've discovered that efficiency as the sole driver of supply chains may not be good enough. You may have to add in other factors like resilience or the ability to adapt. So I thought this was gonna happen after Fukushima back about a decade ago when we had the, the uh, offshore earthquakes and tidal waves in Japan. It actually disrupted some really critical supply chains in the auto sector. And I, I, I thought at that point there would be adjustment, but you know what, it never happened. Firms just waited it out until they could kind of reestablish facilities elsewhere and accepted the adjustment period. But I do think this may be the event that forces businesses of all types to rethink how they actually uh, supply ideas, goods, inputs into production and, and end up serving their client base. I had an interesting conversation on, to your point with the head of the Automotive Parts Manufacturing Association, APMA, Flavio Volpe. Yep. And it was his suggestion that Supply chains generally will remain largely the same, but when it comes to specific types of products, maybe saving an extra two cents on a surgical mask because we're making them in China is not the savings we thought it was. Yet at the same time, there are things that we're still going to have to manufacture elsewhere. And so his suggestion was that maybe we... we um, we separate it out into multiple regions. We fracture that supply chain system so that when one country goes down, the whole chain doesn't fall apart. Yeah, the differentiation between kind of essential goods, we've seen PPE, for example, is now an essential good. Pharmaceuticals, there has been disruption along the way, and we have to rethink whether we're going to allow uh, manufacturing to happen offshore or whether there's going to be more domestic base, putting more of an emphasis on reliability less on efficiency. Those are consumer durables where you can afford to wait six months or a year to buy a car 
or a refrigerator. So I think I think Fabio's right that there's going to be a rethinking of the nature of supply chains, almost sector by sector, even product by product, with a differentiation between what's really essential uh, and and where you can wait. Also, we're going to have to think about backup capacity. I mean, I was really impressed at how quickly we saw firms in the auto sector uh, shift their production and be able to contribute to PPE, to making ventilators, doing things like that. That was done on the fly. Maybe we have to formalize the backup process as well, knowing that if, if you have to transition, have, if you need something urgently, you can actually build the capacity within a few weeks domestically to provide, rather than relying upon international sources of, of supply. I wonder though of what this means for the costs. What is your take on the idea that we've got businesses that can now do things like work from home, so we don't need um, uh, office space at, to the same degree, so we can scale that back. So costs would be reduced with work from home and those types of processes. Yet at the same time, I'm now going to have to pay more for my pharmaceuticals, for that mask that I'm inevitably going to have to wear again in six months when the, the wave two kicks in. Where is your head at on the net impact of COVID-19 economically? Is it going to be more expensive to live or less? Well, right now, um, we're actually seeing deflation appearing within the aggregate numbers. So first of all, your, your basic point, relative prices are going to move a lot. We're going to see some prices fall and some prices rise. The net output uh, will be a function uh, in part of how we actually build those new supply chains. It's also going to be a function of monetary policy, how much we actually allow prices to get settled into the economy and, and roll over. But right now, on a net basis, we're actually seeing deflationary forces. So the net impact of the pandemic period and the shutdown is to depress the aggregate price level. Even though we know, for example, that some food products are going up, we're not seeing sales anymore, which would eventually get built into the price index. But the immediate impact is deflationary. Going forward, I think you're absolutely right to think about the potential inflationary forces of pushing efficiency aside for supply chains, putting more weight on resilience, which means higher prices on a going forward basis. But ultimately, that has to get supported by monetary policy. And of course, our central banks are already doing extraordinary things as well to make credit available. They're basically buying all the government bonds being issued right now. We're gonna to have to find a way to put that genie back in the bottle. So I'm not sure I know the answer on a net basis. I think the net will be probably mildly inflationary, but then it'll be the role of the Bank of Canada and other central banks to ensure that that genie doesn't escape and fly around the room. Let's switch from monetary policy to fiscal policy in whether or not you feel that there is a role for governments to play in what will inevitably become an imbalance in market power with companies that could afford to ride out COVID-19 capturing market share from the companies that couldn't survive. Yeah, the short answer is yes. The the competition police are going to have to really have their 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 spectacles on, watch market developments very carefully. And it may not necessarily be the big things that consumers see. For example, it may not be the way prices play out in telecom or in, in, in banking. It may be small pieces within a supply chain where the scenario you set out is exactly what happens. You have some large suppliers who have enough cash on hand, maybe enough other business revenue from other sources to keep the lights on and be on operation. And of course, they've access the wage subsidy program. So they have a, a workforce ready to go. And then there's other competitors who are kind of mono suppliers, one product line, that market went away and they close the doors. That's a situation where there'd be a lot of monopoly pricing power passed 
to the surviving firms, and they may well will have to watch very carefully to ensure that there's adequate competition in lots of market segments, as opposed to kind of the big things that people normally think about. What aren't we thinking about? What what is there's so much chatter about the impact COVID nineteen will have on us on a long term basis. Is there any area that we ought to be talking about, but we're not? You, you know, Michael, as as I've written about this. For, for the Institute, I, I thought about it, and, and there's probably a whole long list of other things we could in, introduce. We've kind of danced around the concept of disruption. So we've talked already about the digital economy, about the nature of work. Disruption is going to be a permanent fixture. Um, recovery in some of the, the most fragile sectors is going to be really difficult. A sector like hospitality or tourism, it may be a long time before they get back to normal. So there may be a need in particular sectors to keep supporting workers and, and firms to actually ensure, ensure that they can emerge at some f- future point. I think the, the one thing that we do know is that it ain't over. There's going to be further rounds like this. We'll have to constantly kind of evaluate the situation and ensure that we have the right policy tools available to, to ensure that the economy can function again. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.